Hello, everybody. We're back with the September edition of the Third Fridays podcast. We've got brand new equipment, so I think we should sound super, super clear, except for the fact that my guest is a tiny bit under the weather, right? We'll get into that, but you know, you've went on this journey with me despite the fact that you are sick. So I, I do like the dedication just exemplifies who you are as an attorney and a man. Yeah, my pleasure. I hope it makes me. I hope it makes my voice sound cool, a little deeper than usual, <laughs> like like su- more sultry. Yes, right. Yes. Uh, so if no, if nobody uh, can recognize the sultry, sick voice of Mr. Timothy Kane, he is my guest here this month. You were on my podcast, uh, I think, uh, last year. Yeah, uh, episode three, if I'm not mistaken. Go back and take a listen. Look at that. You know, the thing I remember most about it was it was about uh, the claimant's attorney's perspective, right? Because you were on uh, the dark side for quite some time. And I remember after it it was posted, you uh, put a link of it on your Facebook account and someone commented on how I was – too personal, uh, uh, too personally against claimants. Like I was too much of a cynic against the system, and uh, I think I, I just chuckled to myself, thinking that I've done my job. Did that happen? That's that, interesting. That, that happened. I can. <laughs> we can probably pull up the post, but that's uh, probably too private. Yeah. Well, it was interesting work on the claimant side. Um, I, I prefer to work on the carrier side, but it was good work. Uh, that's your recognized uh, <laughs> thought to. The powers that be. Tim enjoys his current job, <laughs> right? Yes. Okay. So uh, what we're going to talk about today is apportionment and specifically date of contracture as it applies to occupational disease claims. Uh, it's a little bit specific. So when you go to the Third Fridays website and see that Third Fridays is typically a 30-minute legal talk show, we're not getting to that level today. We're a little bit more uh, nuanced, and, and it's going to be a little bit shorter than 30 minutes. But typically, Tim, when we get that first uh, note from a client or a phone call and they say that they received notice of an occupational claim being filed, what's the first thing we think about and what's the first thing we do? The first thing we do is probably to recommend that the claim be denied. There you go. Right. That's the uh, first first one down. Um, and why do we do that? I think it's just generally because they don't make sense in the system that you have been working for X amount of years and that is the contributing factor towards whatever condition you may have. You know, despite degenerative conditions, despite other accidents that may have happened in the past, whether you file a claim or not, uh, we generally deny them because we want to develop the record and investigate as to other causes of the condition may be. Does that make sense? Yes. So there are factors that you want to have give yourself a little time to look at. Normally these claims are filed by people who are doing more physical type work. Uh, at least that's largely the case. Um, there's also the possibility of, uh, of dust diseases and that kind of thing. But, um, uh, you never know if someone has a history of claims, so it's something you want to give yourself a little time to look at. Uh, that being said, um, you know usually you're going to send it out to an IME, and they're going to give you an opinion that you're 
uh, oftentimes going to be stuck with. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how many IME opinions are made that we're not stuck with. I guess <laughs> unless they're unless they're really favorable to us, right? Then theoretically that we're not stuck with them because yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we go through the typical process. Um, you know, let's say you know we get a claim, an occupational disease claim disallowed. We're not going to worry about apportionment, right? Because we're not. Uh, liable in any sense. Indeed. Okay. So the focus of this particular show is going to be the established occupational disease claims. And I'm saying established as opposed to accepted because of what Tim just said. We are not outright accepting occupational disease claims because there has to be some other contributing factor that we must investigate first. So the established occupational disease claims then go in a different direction, right? We almost treat them as if they're accepted because, you know, we can't really deny them at that point. So we go through the typical process of degree of disability, attachment, uh, fraud, anything that may apply to a regular accident claim or a regular accepted claim until we get to permanency, right? Right. A lot of these folks, again, who have been doing physical labor, but we take the position that they could probably do some other kind of work, sedentary work, light duty work. So we definitely push attachment and that kind of thing um, leading up to the ultimate finding of permanency. Right. So when we get to permanency, then we have been of the mind in a normal course to raise apportionment, especially an occupational disease claim, because the person who is last uh, who is of the, who is the last employer is the one that usually is on the risk. And in order to recuperate the money's paid uh, pursuant to the share of the time they were employed with our client, we have to investigate prior employers. Does that make sense? Right. And a lot of times from that initial investigation, you'll be aware that somebody worked for a number of different employers over the year, or or you'll be aware that they only worked uh, for your insured for a year or a day, you never know what it would right. be. Right, sometimes we get that information at the outset, right? This, this uh, you know, uh, construction worker was with our client or with the uh, employer for only two days, two months, and he's filing an occupational claim. Why are we the last on the risk? Right, right. and construction workers are the typical sort of case where you see it, where they, they produce union records and they've got sometimes dozens of employers over right. the years, and you can, you know basically assume that they've been doing the kind of work that they were doing when they, they became disabled for many years before that. Right. So if we were to litigate apportionment in the normal sense, right, we produce medical reports saying that it's attributable to other periods of time, and then we bring those employers back on notice and have the judge issue a decision as to who is, uh, well, who are the apportioned carriers for those employers. Now, for that purpose, what is the role or, or the uh, theory behind date of contracture and how does that influence an apportionment finding? Right. So again, once you've determined who employed this person prior to your insured and all the proper parties and carriers are on notice, um, the question becomes not simply at what point did this person become disabled, but at what point did they start displaying symptoms of this illness, this occupational illness, occupational condition um, uh, or disease? 
Um, oftentimes people were doing the same kind of work for multiple employers for many years, and although they were able to continue doing that work for many years, they may have started, for example, in a, a carpal tunnel claim for a, for a carpenter. Um, they might have started feeling pain in their hands and wrists uh, in 1990, and they went to their doctor and they were treated. You mean for they it. knew or should have known that their condition was related to employment? Right, but <laughs> they're able to. The board panel will allow the, those people to keep working if they keep working. It's one thing if they stop working and they don't file a claim for many years, but if they keep working, um, but you know, usually you would look for that. Like you were just saying, you could look for that kind of information to try and get a, a claim disallowed. But if the person kept working and if the claim gets established. You can take that information and use it a different way in the apportionment context and go back and say, look, judge, he's been complaining of these symptoms for 20 years and he worked for 10 different employers. And so we want to apportion against all of those employers. And it's a, uh, a prorated um, finding where it's based on the length of time the person worked for each of those employers. Okay. So now we've established that if we can't get a disallowance, that we can recover some Money's paid in indemnity and medical when the claimant reaches permanency. But you know, when we were discussing this case, kind of off the cuff, you found this random board panel decision in 2016 that said something different. Now, uh, for everybody listening, that's uh, Matter of Construction Solutions. It's an April 7th, 2016 board panel decision. Tim, tell me what you found in that case that kind of made this podcast even worthy of recording like this is this is like different now well i'm flattered no i um i I, you know first of all the standard the norm is that you would wait until the claimant has has reached permanency before you raise apportionment that's i think you ask any new york comp attorney they're going to tell you yeah that's how it's done Uh, but this one board panel decision that you just referenced uh, has what appears to be some conflicting information um, that there's no requirement in the statute that you wait until permanency has been reached to litigate a date of contracture um, or apportionment. Um, I, it's frankly unclear to me. It seems contradictory. I think there are multiple board panel decisions that contradict each other in this regard, and so maybe it's a well, point in every that, issue, right? <laughs> it's a point that can be mined further, um, but... From a litigation standpoint, I think what it tells us is that you shouldn't necessarily rest on your laurels until permanency. Um, if you want to ask an IME the question about date of contracture um, and, and when you know how far back this person's illness goes, and based on prior medical records and everything you've got at your disposal, uh, there's no no reason to wait. Um, the worst case scenario, the judge just tells you, no, you have to wait till permanency, but. It's possible the judge may may allow you to litigate that issue ahead of permanency. Yeah, and I think you're kind of getting to where uh, our investigation of this issue kind of like led us to, right? The rabbit hole that uh, we start kind of dug ourselves into, uh, because if date of contracture is already restricting us to a time period and the entities in which we can recover monies due, right, or monies paid and recover them back from other entities. Why not know that before we reach permanency, right? I'm not necessarily convinced that we can like satisfactorily raise apportionment prior to permanency, right? This one board panel decision is kind of standalone. And it did surprise us, which you know makes us kind of think a little bit more. But 
I would, would probably find hundreds and maybe thousands of board panel decisions that say the opposite, right? That uh, permanency or apportionment is not applicable until permanency, right? Right. I mean, you can certainly raise it all along. You can ask that awards be made without prejudice to apportionment, but uh, it seems to be the case that the judge is not going to make a finding of apportionment until permanency has been reached uh, as, as far as the normal practices and procedures seem to go. Right. So, I mean, yes, we will remember matter of construction solutions for the rest of our days, right? Uh, totally. But, <laughs> but what it kind of led me to was a uh, different case, uh, matter of Maximus. It's a more recent board panel decision in April of this year where a board panel found a date of contracture before permanency, right? Because if we're talking about the normal case where you're not raising apportionment until permanency, then you're likely not raising date of – you're not uh, litigating date of contracture until permanency also, right? That seems sensible or logical. <laughs> okay. So then if you can find date of contracture before permanency and you can find apportionment before permanency in isolated cases – Right then, my thinking is we can make more specific valuations and exposure analyses of those occupational disease claims that are established earlier in the game. Right, I think the problem with making those valuations before permanency is that you don't know how much is going to be apportioned back to other carriers. Right, it's up in the air as to when the date of contracture is, and then when you can find out who the other prior employers are. At the very least, if you can find a date of contracture before permanency and you know that for the person to apply for his construction job had to give his employment history or his union records to that company, then we can figure out who those employers are prior to permanency and get a better idea of how much we're going to recover in an eventual apportionment finding. Does that make sense? And if so, like, what do you think are the practical aspects of having this actually done? Because you know, right now, like, I'm I'm thinking of this more in a you know almost like a law student theory mind, where like I haven't made this application because typically date of contracture isn't an issue until permanency anyway, right? So if we can conceive of a possibility where it's not, could you see a law judge? allowing this to happen in the litigation uh, aspect of the case? I think most judges will will gladly kick that can down the road until permanency. Most judges won't address it, but I think it's possible if you, if you have the right judge and you argue it the right way, it's possible that a judge may decide, okay, you know, we have the information we need. We have the union records. Maybe those union records were were necessary, you know, when you first litigated um, establishment of the claim. Maybe you have them in there for, for a reason, um, some other reason like uh, concurrent employment or who knows. But uh, if you know who the prior employers are, um, there's nothing to stop you from, from getting asking an IME for an opinion. And some judges may go ahead just to dispose of that issue, may allow you to, you know, set a date of contracture, uh, which is certainly a point of information that would be helpful, like you said, in, in doing an exposure analysis, even if the judge isn't going to make a finding of apportionment at that time. Um, alternatively, if you don't address it in litigation, um, you can still 
try to give yourself a better idea of what the exposure is. It's you know anything you can do to make it less speculative and to give yourself additional information um, that you can use to figure out exposure is a good thing. And I think in the end, right, whether we can actually pursue that in litigation, like you said, is up to a number of factors. I mean, anytime you're introducing some kind of new concept, you need the right circumstances to apply, right, for that to really work. But, I mean, I think you hit the nail right on the head there because ultimately once the occupational disease claim is established, right, now we're moving towards, you know, not as much of importance uh, in the litigation side and really a focus on the closure side, right? So, like, if we can know to a better degree uh, and more accurately what the exposure is for an established occupational disease claim, then it puts us and our clients in a better position for the life of the claim, no matter what the litigation comes out to, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> it sounds like we've talked about this issue before we went on the podcast, right? We're just in agreement. But I guess that's the case for every single episode. And the fact that I have guests every month that are from my own firm, mm. right? Mm. I guess, well, there was one exception, but, you know, he was like my best friend. So <laughs> he came on and, and basically agreed with me too. Okay. So now we can discuss occupational disease claims in the context of date of contracture and what we do about it in the litigation side after the exposure analysis has been made. So my thought was you're going to get an IME anyway, right? In most cases, right? An occupational disease claim, you're going to have enough time because you're removing it from the expedited calendar. You don't have that crazy timeline to get it in three days before trial. So you have more time to schedule an IME with a, a reputable doctor and get the report in on time to dispute causal relationship. Now, what would you say to the option of having that doctor comment on date of contracture prior to the compensability decision? Do you think that that would influence a judge to find causal relationship, or is that something that we should only develop after the establishment of the case? I think it it might be a risk because date of contracture implies that an occupational disease has been contracted. So I think that first IME, you might just want to stick to the question of whether the claimant has a cause-related occupational disease. Um, you might be putting the cart before the horse just a little bit if you ask for that the first time around. Um, that being said, if the doctor comments on it, you know you can use that information as you will. But uh, I would I, personally, I think I might wait until after the claim is established, at least before asking an IME to comment on that. Um, particularly if you have, at that point, the information about the prior employment. Okay, and Tim, confirm for our uh, listening audience that I did not ask you this question to help prepare you before today's <laughs> podcast. No, you didn't ask me. That was right, you know, here and now. I was live. All right, that's that's great because that just speaks to your skill as an attorney and your ability to answer questions rapid fire, which I appreciate and I was confident that you could succeed in doing. I think that's all we have for today on this claim, uh, on this issue. Um, We had told you before that this was not going to be a long podcast, but this was a very specific issue regarding established 
occupational disease claims that now have a possibility to be investigated for date of contracture prior to permanency and give us an opportunity to really value claims more accurately if we can be provided the the proper information and be in the right circumstance. Now, whether that's a segue into the first time I'm mentioning this, but that would be a defend from day one theory, right, Tim? Like if you want to know who the employers were before the claim is even established, that means we're putting in the right preparations in a worst-case doomsday scenario, right? We want all these to be disallowed, but for the ones that get established, then we're prepared to go forward and minimize the exposure. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, more information is always a good thing. Um, You know, you might have a situation where um, this is kind of spitballing here, but where somebody... Um, their prior work was the real cause of their, their accident. You know, if they were doing very physical labor and they switched into something sedentary, you, know, you, you might be able to argue that it was the prior work that really um, caused this person's occupational disease, that kind of thing. But more information is always a good thing. <laughs> right. I, I've yet to see the established OD claim that at permanency then gets 100% apportioned to a prior job. No, no, no. I was right? talking more about the uh, establishment of the claim. But anyways... You're right. You're right. I mean, yeah, we have a construction worker that is now a uh, telemarketer, right? right? He's not going to get uh, necessarily the telemarketer's carrier to be last on the risk, right? So that's a good good, uh, detail to also put in there. Well, Tim, you've been on this entire podcast and you have not sneezed once. Uh, You've really kept it together. Uh, I was expecting at least a couple of times where we'd have to explain some errant noise. And I also want to get out of this kill room that we have because there's no windows because now the germs are populated more closely. Um, Yes, my producer is already sick now. Um, You're welcome. (laughs) So for Tim Kaine, uh, this is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one. See you next month.